hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Oh, welcome back to Hamster with a Blunt Penknife. Uh, I am your guest host this evening, uh, Jack Hoyer, joined as always by the uh, podcast uh, curator, Mr. Joe Ford. Now, Joe, I don't mean to worry you, but you and I and our lovely audience are on the brink of disaster. What are. are your thoughts? I'm terrified, frankly. Um, I'm scared. I, I don't know who Frank Cox is or what his ability is to mount a camera. But, uh, <laughs> no, uh, I've just been downstairs and there's a sinister old man with a bandage around his head handing out drinks. So I had a little sip, all right? So let's see how I do. Exactly. Just remember, two shots of water, one shot milk. No, sure. Whatever happened to that? Um, oh God, what was it called? Fault Locator. The Fault Locator, and um, so in the DVD special features, I can't remember who it is, it might be um, very few lamb, but it just says, you know, it was too big, it just took up too much space on the set, so they didn't really want to use it, you know. I love it, it the same way as the time space visualizer, and you know. I love that as well. I think I love all those innovations in the TARDIS, you know. Yeah, there's probably a giant cupboard that has all these things <laughs> in, like, you know, all the spare rooms in Germany to the centre of the TARDIS. Yeah. That little, um, that little pilot's helmet that turns the tenth Doctor human in human nature, family of blood. You know, all these props are somewhere. The second control room's in there somewhere from season 14. Exactly, the monogamy, the, um... The funky lights that they turned down in like Fontios and stories like that. The um, the power room from the mind robber. It's all in that, and the room yeah. itself is dimensionally transcendental. So it looks, looks like a cupboard, but you go in and yeah. it's massive, you know. That chair that Tom Baker sits in in dimensions in time. You know, they're all all the props are somewhere. That bloody hat stand that turns up for up A's, you know. Yes. <laughs> the one prop. No. Where will Jodie Whittaker hang her hat now? <laughs> she wore a uh, hat. She wore a plume because she mentioned, oh, I do love a plume. I think it's in Haunting a Village by Dorothy. She, she goes, Oh, I probably love a plume. She put a fez on, didn't she, in Kablam? Yes, in Kablam. She ordered a fez from a Kablam man. I mean, where is that box? It's probably, you know, somewhere in there. I wonder if that Kablam robot's in there as well. I think he's still in the TARDIS somewhere. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if he disappeared. I'm sure he, him and Chameleon are probably in the cupboard somewhere. And I don't know if you know this, but in Warriors of the Deep in season 20, right, three mm. people wander into the TARDIS, right? But we only ever see one of them again on the sea base. So I reckon those two <laughs> yeah, people that wandered in, they're in there as well, wandering about. Exactly. Everyone, you know, there's probably just a junk room. I mean, maybe some of the stuff got jettisoned in Castorella. Uh, Maybe uh, just go with it. That's that's the head cannon. The fault locator was jettisoned in Castle Well, I hope this this cupboard, this dimensionally transcendental cupboard, wasn't jettisoned. You know, because I think we just thought of a great idea here. We can write a story about this. Exactly. You know, you don't need a fault locator when you've got Tegan going. Something's gone wrong. <laughs> that's your fault locator, right there. 
Can I just say it's like, right, I'd rather have a fault to take locator as a companion than Tegan. Okay, it's like, go wrong. I probably adopt his nickname too. I could probably hear that I'm a corridor and that's the bloody fault locator again. Pete Davidson could go, instead of these are my companions, Tegan and Lissa, these are my companions, the fault locator and the food machine. (laughs) (laughs) And the weeper of talking. What this all has to do with edge destruction, I've got no idea. But no, no, I mean this all shows on the brink of disaster, right now. I think I may, I may have taken us off course. Then I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but shall we circle back round to the brink of disaster? Yes, we shall. We shall uh, see what this episode has to offer and why I enjoy it so much. Okay. And you know, it's only 22 minutes, so you know, it's not that big a deal. No. It won't hurt. It's not the monster of Peladon or something like that, you know, three hours long. Exactly. You know, you're not sitting through six episodes of this was done a lot better when it was four episodes two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, shall I count this this time? Oh, definitely. Please do. In five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Off we go into Coxland. Into the cops. I beg your pardon. Good grief. Now look here, you have listened to a few of these, haven't you? Now you're taking my place as being the filth bag. So wherever this uh, title sequence and theme tune rank for you, sort of, are they amongst your favourites? It is my favourite. I think think it's got that mystery to it, isn't it? And that foreboding. And I just think there was just nothing else like it at the time, you know, like, I don't know, you look at, um, like, the 80s one, the kind of spangly Mm. disco one, and there were other shows doing similar-ish sort of things, whereas at the time this came out, there was just nothing like this at all, you know, it was unique. Yeah. On the scale of sort of, you know, strange to magical, I'd rather... Oh, Jack, it was Ian. It was Ian all along. It was Ian all along. We found the fault. I do you know what? Did you ever watch that um WandaVision? Yes, I did, yeah. We could have sang that, could we? It was Ian Arla. It was Ian for fifties house one. I do love it when Hartnell and Hill get scenes together. Like, they have some electrifying they are aspects. I mean, the aspects, you know, is the obvious, clear, you know, distinction of it. Mm. But um, they do, you need that doctor and companion just to actually shine together. I didn't realize how short Caroline Ford was, you know, until she stood next to Hartnell. And I mean, I know she's a child, but even so, she's sort of. I can understand why she was frustrated, though. If you look at her run, like, yeah. like we said, there's this, there's the first episode, and there's maybe, maybe little bits, yeah, yeah, little bits of the sensorites, and possibly in that kind of love interest story of Dalek Invasion. But that's about it. Yeah, you know, Planet of Giants, she sort of joins in fine, and um, but the Reign of Terror is oh. maybe the worst use of any companion ever in a single. <laughs> Is I would agree. Just not. Like, and then doesn't she just like lie down for two episodes or something? <laughs> like, yeah, and you're about like, thank God. Those are probably the best episodes. And there's this famous story, isn't it, about old Heinrich? What's his name? Uh, the guy who directed 
Ray and Tara saying to her, you know, mm. why, Kara, why are you always acting so maudlin? And, uh, but it's the way she's written. She, you know, like, yeah, particularly when you think, you know, that's the same guy is written like the Romans, and you look at Vicky and the Romans and go, how are these two roles? Now you're talking, Vicky and the Romans. I think I poisoned Caesar. I mean, the Romans Romans is my favorite heart. That's just an absolute classic of you know of the story but like think about that for a second yeah we're watching edge of destruction and in the very next season is the Roman. now you just couldn't get two more disparate stories you couldn't get two more different no. stories that's what makes god do great is that you can put the edge of destruction next to the romans or you know planet giants next to dalek revenge of earth or what have you and well, do you think then that the hartnell era is like the most experimental era doctor who Definitely, because they have nothing to compare on. You know, they're not thinking, oh, we need to do a Dalek story every year to keep the nation state happy, or, oh, we can't have any pure historicals or anything like that. They just sort of did what they wanted, and I think that. But it, it is possible, like, a lot of shows do fall into a formula very quickly, don't they? Like, a lot of shows mm. say, right, this is, this is what we're doing, you know, a procedural drama, a romantic comedy, whatever. They really actively pushed away from that, didn't they? They said, no, we're going to do everything and anything. Yeah, particularly, obviously, this is written by David Whittaker, the script editor. So you would think he's got quite a keen grip on where the show has been and where it's going. And so this is clearly quite tailor-made to sort of bridge that gap. Well, you know what's absurd, right? So this is written by David Whittaker, and he also wrote Power of the Daleks, he also wrote Enemy of the World and The Wheel in Space. Now, I mean, I just can't think of more different stories. Like, the guy had a bit of talent to him, you know? Oh, yeah, they're all quite strong, I think, for the TARDIS teams as well. Mm. Even The Wheel in Space, which I'm not that fond of. No, all me. They trusted Patrick Troutman and Fraser Hines enough to dominate that first episode. And then Wendy Padbury comes right in and you're just like, Bam, that's the best second Doctor Tardis team, you know, immediately. Oh, um, second best. What's the best then? No, the best. So I mean, best, not second best. I, I, um, I mean, I've, I've one of my favourite Tardis teams of all, you know, um, immediately. Yeah. Well, see, uh, logic, my dear Jack, merely allows people to be wrong with authority. Wrong with authority. You know, you, you've got to have a Tardis team that are all sort of have their own individual qualities which separate them from each other, which I think this team does. And, you know, as I said, Troughton and, and Hines and Padbury do. Are they, are they starting to get on now? They're smiling at each other. Yeah, they're like, they're, they're accepting what's going on more, I think. Except for Barbara sort of still scowling, but... Uh, one thing I will say is, is um, obviously like Hartnell <laughs> puts it all together. Like, oh yeah, the melting clock, the doors opening. Like, like I don't think this is structured well enough as a mystery for the audience to be able to put together. Like the idea of a mystery is that you can solve it, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think you can solve I mean, it until you're told the answer, you know? <laughs> I think there are definitely pieces there. It's just maybe people were too scared to tell the script editor that this might need a second going over. And um, what is it the TARDIS is warning them, is it? 
Yes, it's, well, it, it, leading on to stuff like, you know, the Doctor's wife and stuff like that, the TARDIS is like a sentient being with uh, there's, there's trying to warn them of danger in the best way it knows how, which is flashing like um, the doors open. It's all a bit obscure and couched in metaphor, isn't it? I ought to just create an interface and said, look, you're all in terrible danger. There's the beginning of the universe there. Let's get out of here. Yes, I mean, that would have idea, you know, if they had the technology, they would probably have a little mini William Hartnell jump up and go, oh, there's a danger going on, you know. But I do like all this. Like, there's something like a lot of suspense, world. isn't there? There's like a, it's like the TARDIS is in danger. We are at the beginning is it the beginning of the entire universe the beginning of the new solar system i think he uh, oh, described okay. it that's quite that's again, a... you want... sorry yeah on. you want these big wider angles so you can see all four of them like there's a great shot just gone past where all four of them are in their sort of corners but mm. like, like boxes in a ring all sort of staring at each other this is better executed isn't it this episode Yes, I mean, I think very few Amber on the special features says she wanted to give Frank Cox that opportunity to sort of impress, which is why she's given him this one episode. Um, and I think she does. I mean, Hartnell's performance definitely leaps up in this episode. Um, he does his classic, you know, grabbing the lapels, rub the lapels with your thumbs, look off into the distance and say something ominous. Well, I'm going to be bold enough to say I think this is the point where it's this episode where he becomes the lead of the show. Yeah, he becomes the Doctor that a newcomer would recognise. Whereas in the Daleks, where, you know, you stupid old man, and in um, An Unearthly Child, where they're constantly criticising him, you're just really not sure, are you? Whereas here, like you say, grabbing the lapel, straight to the camera, the hero moment... Yeah. It's the hero moment, which obviously he, he gets, you know, crescendos in something like the War Machines, but um, here is like that, that pose that you want to put on the front of Doctor Who magazine or something like that, you know. Well, in Russia, you know, he's been in that dressing gown this whole story. Yes, I don't remember when Barbara put that, that on. I don't remember that scene happening. Um, what is Susan doing in the background there? She's just sort of grabbing the chair and sort of looking a bit. Yeah, just cowering. He put just cowering. Just cower, you know. Carol, can you just cower in the background, please? <laughs> they probably call her, you know, Cower and Ford. And, you know, <laughs> and, uh... Do you know what? I know someone who's done a whole reef of puns around her name, and that's, I think that's our best of them all. Well done. <laughs> Look at that shot then over the console. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's a really great, it's one of my favourite consoles. It's the classic design, which they don't change that much. It's got when they um, re, uh when they recreated it for Adventure in Space and Time, oh, it was just so beautiful, wasn't it's it? Really nailed on. Um the only difference is I think the roundels look a little bit better in. I mean, in here, you almost want to give them a good ironing because they're looking a bit sort of <laughs> Only a true aficionado of Doctor Who would recognise that, you know, the roundel thing. Yeah. 
So don't you be coming to me yeah. saying your mate's got all those DVDs in his. Yeah, it's a little bit creepy. You almost want to bring him an ironing board and be like, give me them, you know. <laughs> that is sophisticated timeline technology, all right. <laughs> It is, you know, it's well, we can't say time lord yet because it's the first thought yeah. you can never mention those words lest you be excommunicated. Sophisticated alien technology. There we go. Yeah, we don't even know that, do we? He could just be like a human from the future. Uh, I think him and I'm every child they save it from another planet, they do. So, yeah, I think that's why, but you are right. Look, that console's covered in fabulous knobs. You know, so many switches and wires because it's a complicated time machine. You don't just whack one thing with a hammer and you're off, you know. Do you remember? The, I don't know what story it is. There's one story where they got the camera, um, and the camera was from the point of view of the console, and you've got Hartnell reaching to the camera to like touch the switch. Yeah, reaching to the, yeah, the dance. Yeah. Um, I do really like this moment where, where Hartnell turns to him and says, Young man, you know. We're not going to make it. Will you face the end with me? Which I think is quite a sweet moment of them all coming together. That's um, yeah. It's like it's like that moment in um, Fires of Pompeii. Do you remember where the, the Doctor realizes that he's going to have to cross, and Donna takes his hand. And, him and, Donna sort of link hands and it's the and point where they they actually bond. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, there's a lot going on here, isn't there? Far more going on here than I actually remember. Yes, I think, you know, even without the context of the other two, I think you can still gain quite a bit from this. Yeah, uh, Jack, do you mind? Now all I am all I can notice is the creases in those roundels. I'm so sorry. And the little joinings where about the half <laughs> ones on the floor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were rushed, okay? They were rushed. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> What was it? Uh, the news is out. The Doctor Who's in. Get it up quick. <laughs> yeah, hurry up. We've got Grandstand in an hour. We need to get this out. Is this the first time we realised that TARDIS is kind of sentient? Because the Doctor just said the ship refused to destroy itself. Yeah, well, in the book, obviously, in the novelization, I think the Doctor's a lot less, more hesitant to acknowledge its sentience. Um, oh, now, we have to stay quiet for this because this is maybe the iconic first doctor moment. Well, would you like would you like me to turn it up a little bit? I could turn it up so we can hear it. Hang on. Maybe turn it up a little just so we can appreciate the one Bill Hartman one and off the actually now. Here it is. You ready? Outside the atoms are rushing towards each other, fusing, coagulating. To mind you, that's a marvelous impression of William Hartley you're doing there. It's just a little mumbling and sort of waving your hands about. And so the process goes on. And on. What are those weird sound effects? Uh, in the, there's a great bit on the DVD commentary, special features, where Richard Martin describes his process of talking to the radio from at work. And he says, I'll just ring them up and go, well, uh, can you give me a little bit of a, a little bit of a pop and a little bit of a whoo and a little bit of a wee and then uh, someone on the end of the other end of the phone will go, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll just make these noises. I mean, uh, I've said yes, this I've a million times. You cannot yeah. underestimate the work that those sound designers did. 
Oh yeah, they make the, the program of it. They, they give it that alien quality. I mean, was that what um, was that? The forces of the universe coagulating around them, or something? Yes, and I love the, the favorite one is a solid entity. You know, when he's like convulsing as he says it. Honestly, it's like William Hartnell's in the room. You know, he is. He's, he's taking me over like a poltergeist. Oh, no. now, what, what Why are you, you suddenly clutching your lapels, Jack? Yeah, sorry. If I had <laughs> lapels, I'll clutch them, but I'll clutch my uh, T-shirt. What do you think about the fast return switch? What are your thoughts on it? Well, I think it's very bizarre that it's written on the console in felt tip. I love that because in universe, if I were the doctor, I'd want to label all the buttons because I, w- I wouldn't remember what any of them do. <laughs> Hang on, which one's the self-destruct? Oh yeah, I'll write that and, down. Yeah, which one the, the ship will kill everyone button? Oh yeah, right. <laughs> my god, look, all the lights came on then, and the camera just sort of panned backwards. It was lovely. Yeah, I wonder if that was like particularly rehearsed, like we've got to nail this visual of everything going back to normal. This is far more stylish, this piece, isn't it? This episode. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, everyone's friends funny. again. Yes, well, sort of. I mean, oh, but maybe it comes around a bit later. But do you know what? When Barbara and the Doctor, you know, I, I know, and I don't mean fall in love in you know the traditional sense, but when they have, oh, I mean, they in the romance, but, you know, it's gorgeous when he's going. I know you're saying I can't go off and be on my own. You're insulting me, and she's there dusting his jacket and going, "No, Doctor, you exactly. know, she's, you know, she's dusting his jacket and sort of combing his hair." And at that point, you know, <laughs> we know what that means, you know. And in the chase. Because the train going through a tunnel, but we we get that metaphor. Do you remember in the chase where they're sunbathing, and she's like, "What's that awful noise?" He's like, "Awful noise." Yes. But don't you think? Um, uh, I love don't you think the fact that it was a, a dodgy spring is a little bit underwhelming? Well, maybe. However, if you look at something today, like, you know, Black Mirror, I think the best kind of Black Mirror ones are the ones where the technology does exactly what it's designed to do. And it's kind of the human fallacies of humanity that sort of led to their downfall. And really, it was the team quarrelling that almost led to the edge of destruction. And, you know, the, the TARDIS is seen as this place of refuge in an unearthly child and the Daleks. It's like, right, we'll just get back to the TARDIS and everything yeah. will be okay. Which I think might create a sense of complacency in kids. Like, oh, once they get back to the TARDIS, the story is over. But this comes along to show you, no, the story is not over. The TARDIS is not your friend. It's not your vehicle. It can think for itself. If you press the wrong button, you will be dead. It will kill you. And I think that's that reinvigorates it for me anyway as a first time viewer. And that gives the show that sense of added danger, which is like nowhere is safe, not even the Thomas. That's a else. great reading. Do you know what? That's a really good reading of this. Yeah. 
Because I've heard a lot of people say, no, but like I've heard a lot of people go, oh, you know, dodgy spring. That's very anticlimactic. That's just a, uh, you know, oh, a hand wave and the story's over, you know. But actually, yeah. you're right. Yeah. And and in throughout this entire two-parter, the TARDIS has not been a place of refuge, has it? It has been... No, a... they, you wanna, they want to go back to the Cave of Skulls, probably after this, you know. What are they saying? Ghost Light? It's like an asylum with the patients in charge. Yeah, I mean, no, no wonder they didn't go in the TARDIS much in the Sylvester McCoy era. <laughs> oh, Jesus the, Christ. The doctor and they probably desperate to leave. Well, Sylvester McCoy's doctor, he's probably got terribly sinister things going on behind the scenes oh yeah God, he's probably instructing the TARDIS to, to kill us <laughs> oh I love this this scene here where he apologises this is yes this is the making of Barbara and the making of the first Doctor it's fabulous and do you know what when he is like apologetic and cute like this I just don't think there's any better Doctor he's just wonderful <laughs> Yes, he's absolutely, he might even be my favourite classic doctor at Porsche because of stuff like this. He ranks for me. He does rank. And like you mentioned, the Romans, mm -hmm. that's one of my favourites as well. And Hartnell in that is exemplary. Yes, he's that sort of stern kind of character who you get a lot of mine and a lot of comedy out of. Can um, I say the line again? I, I, I say it all the time, but I just want to say yes, it all the time. Thank you. Kill Nero. I beg your pardon. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, that double take. He's probably the doctor who's best at a double take. I yeah. think you know. I know Tom Baker did a lot, but do you remember when he when he drinks the cocoa? It's like, yes, I actually Oh, do you know what Barbara's fabulous jumpers? Yeah, so they you know. It's looking a bit big on her, but you know, she and well, a lot of them get unraveled as well, yes. But you know, and of course, it's going to be covered up now by this lovely uh coat. I think those might be the, the first in joke, those jumpers, because eventually, uh, is it in the Space Museum or the chase where she goes, I'm not again? <laughs> She's got to just unwind there to unravel it so they know where <laughs> they're going, yeah. And I love the idea of even this early in the show, the Doctor is uh, stockpiling hundreds of clothes, which presumably he's stolen from thousands of women. Look at that out the door. That's a lovely... Yes, I do like that snowy background. That's quite nice. Yeah. And I don't know what on earth this coat is. Like, what? Is that what it's meant to look like on a human? <laughs> I love the fact that it's not... The doctor and any of the girls that go out arm in arm. It's the doctor. Well, yeah, yeah. It's like Timur's argument. Very progressive Doctor Who, you know, in the 60s. Exactly. And uh, this footprint, which is uh, made by a quite a large person, is apparently a giant, but I'm not sure that's a particularly giant footprint. Uh, the next episode, The Roots of the World. I can't wait to watch that episode because it yep. definitely exists. And it's not been thrown in a fire. It's not been thrown in a fire, though. No. Oh man, why did they do it? I, I, I'm not going to go. I've discussed that too many times. I get angry every time, so I'm not going to talk about uh, what's the woman's name. I've forgotten her name now. Oh, I don't remember. But no. whoever she was, she, but, she I mean, she, laugh, you know. she was just doing her job. To be fair, 
you know. Exactly. Yeah. He's only following orders. So. Yeah. You know, and it's just, you know, I always do what I'm supposed to do with my job. It's just my job wasn't junk in Doctor Who episodes. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, it, it's just that it is such a relief that we've got all the audios and that we have enough images that we can sort of picture these stories in our minds. Uh, just, you know. I'll tell you what, Jack, my... Um... Wow, Raph's convinced that someone's got the old lot down in the cellar somewhere. <laughs> I mean, probably a lot of people probably have some of these episodes. I mean, I don't know about Marco Polo, but a lot of episodes are probably sat there with people who either don't know what they have on their hands or or people who are, you know, can be bought out for the right amount of money. Oh, well, no, he gets incredibly. He thinks someone's got them deliberately. He's watching them themselves. He gets very angry when he talks about it. I'll try and avoid the subject if I'm honest with you. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. So now you know how this works. At the end of the story, yeah. you now have to give me three very good reasons as to why you would recommend the Edge of Destruction. Well, I'd like to caveat this first by saying I think the best way to watch The Edge of Destruction is not to go, oh, I'm going to watch, you know, Earthshock and then Remembrance of the Daleks and then City of Death and then The Edge of Destruction. <laughs> oh, my God. I think, I think, and I'm actually child, The Daleks, The Edge of Destruction is the best sequence to do it in. Yeah. However... If you don't have, you know, seven hours on your hands and you've just got, you know, 50 minutes to watch a little bit of Doctor Who, I would say The Edge of Destruction shows the bonding of the TARDIS team, you know, with as much expediency and economy as almost any other story. Um, it's... In most people's eyes, it's probably three quarters of the best William Hartnell team, um, you know, uh, yeah. who all, I think, learn to grow up and get over their differences. And, you know, as the book novelization says, you know, they're going to get out of this. They need to be sort of united together. Um, it's an interesting opportunity to view the approach with different directors take to a Doctor Who story. Obviously, a lot of them are just one director, particularly in New Who, so it's sort of interesting to see the minor changes, the quicker camera moves, the sort of the more steady pace um, that two different directors can take to approach the same story. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's... The, the Doctor Who that I like is anthology storytelling but serialized characterization you know the characters grow from week to week and the settings change from week to week and i think the edge of destruction shows that change um perfectly you know it's a fun little story it doesn't take up too much of your time and you know you see some beautiful friendships cement, which I think is what Doctor is all about. I think with uh, what you said there, anthology storytelling and characterization that develops week to week, you get the best of both worlds there, don't you? You get the <laughs> diversity of the storytelling, but you get the consistency of the characterization. Definitely. And I think, you know, 
in this era in particular, both of those factors are strong. You know, I think in a lot of other eras, they probably drop one or the other. They might, in the classic era, they'd probably be more likely to drop the continuing characterization. And New Who is probably ragged on a bit for dropping the sort of, not, not making them completely different, completely the same settings, but you can sort of get the rhythm of a Russell T. Davis series. You kind of know roughly what you're going to get and that, you know, Rose, The End of the World, The Unquiet Dead, Aliens of London, that structure and that format is basically the same over all this series, particularly yeah. at the start of each series. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with this, you know, and my earthly child and the planet giants and you know and um galaxy four and the smugglers <laughs> are all quite different even though they're the four they're the four season openers the hartnell and they're all quite different from each oh, other anything that's similar about those is hartnell's in all of them <laughs> like... yeah for, for varying amounts of time what's yeah. interesting is is in the mm. 80s i think you get the most especially like Davison's time, you get the most of anthology like because the stories can be very disparate, yeah. like yeah. Androzani and Twin Dilemma. Like, um, I mean, there's I guess the, the issue with Davison a little bit is I think season 19 does it really well. The only way you could make it more of an anthology, I suppose, is if you swapped around the visitation and Kimber. Because I suppose the visitation of Black Orchid back to back and, and maybe a bit similar. Yes, yeah, true. And then I guess the scale take over in the sense that you've got like and Warriors it, of the Deep, Resurrection of the Daleks, Caves of Andazani, which are all a bit more similar. But yeah, and, and again, what you don't have there that you do have here, I think the characterization is incredibly weak in that era. <laughs> Whereas here it's very strong. There's a real focus. Yeah, I mean, you know, you might get there with Tegan and Davison, uh, Tegan and the Doctor, kind of eventually, <laughs> but not with the experience, the experience of this. You know, imagine if in the time, this is the same amount of time as Black Orchid, people take a few minutes. But imagine if that had sort of done what this does and kind of you nailed those personalities down that quickly yeah yeah no i agree i agree well listen jack i've had a whale of a time talking about the edge and i never thought i'd say i'd have a whale of a time talking about the edge of destruction no uh yes it's i do have one more question for you before you go which is obviously you've said you've said you don't you haven't obviously done a blog for the edge of destruction yes and so i'm keen just quickly if you did a little sort of summary of it and then maybe gave it, do you, do you give scores or ratings okay. out of 10? Yeah, out of 10, yeah. Maybe we did just a little one of them. What, just right now? Just, even if it's just a score or something. Oh, my God, I love being put on the spot like this. Amazing. Um, okay. Uh, I'd say um, claustrophobic. Uh... Scary and awkward because I think there's, there are yeah, I, 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 
Um, uh, this is a pivotal piece of storytelling in season one of Doctor Who, uh, which allows for some vital development of the relationships between the regulars and an interesting exploration of the TARDIS as well. Uh, very competently directed by Frank Cox, less so by Richard Martin, uh, with some very memorable set pieces throughout. Uh, this falls apart a little bit towards the end uh, with a, a very interesting, but perhaps not altogether convincing wrap up of what's going on. Six out of ten. Fair enough. I, I can't really disagree with anything you said about that, even though I kind of, I might balk at a six, but then I kind of sit there and go, you know, six out of ten is pretty good. That's the majority. You know, you right. enjoyed the majority of it, which is what a six out of ten is. So I I've been called a six out of ten in my time. Do you know, I'll take it. That's not bad. <laughs> you know, it is. Six out of ten is over half. And if you enjoy over half of the Doctor Who story, I think that's. That's pretty decent. Um, well, my very last question for you then is, New Who, your choice, where are we going next? Well, my favourite Doctor, the one who got me into Doctor Who, is obviously the ninth Doctor. Okay. I love Series 1, I still do to this day, and obviously I know that Christopher Eccleston only has 10 stories, so it would be remiss of me to not try and grab one of them before they all run out. Well, I can tell you what's now, left. Oh, okay. So off the top of my head, the only one I can think of that you've done is you did with Nathan Bottomley. You did Aliens of London and World War Three. That's the only one off the top of my head that's been published. I don't know if you have more that you... Uh, more hidden ones that I just haven't seen. Boomtown, Partner of the Ways and Bad Wolf. Have all been recorded. Are they the ones that you've done or the ones that are left? They're the ones that have been recorded. Um, so uh, Rose Under the World, Unquiet Dead, uh, Dalek, although I'm still trying to twist Rob Schumann's arm. We've been talking. Oh, that would be quite a. You should, you should get the target mobilization out and just start reading passages. <laughs> the Long Game and The Empty Child and the Doctor's Dances. Take your pick. Well, I'm not sure if it's my favourite one out of these, but it's one I enjoy. I figured we've done the third story of Classico, the third story ever. Yeah. Maybe we do the third story ever of New Doctor Who, The Unquiet Dead. I've been on a bit of a Mark Gatiss run at the moment, so it feels Yes, I know. So if your Mark Gatiss are fun, your Mark are fun, <laughs> well... Uh, <laughs> the marathon continues. No, we can't have and, any and more if, hashtags, all right? If, if I see hashtag marathon, hashtag marathon, uh, um, we'll continue and we'll watch a little bit of one of my favourite TARDIS teams running through the snow and uh, dealing with the ghosts. That sounds delightful. Do you know? We'll book a date and I'll say what I always say until next time. Thank you very much.